Last week there was a question about the Buddha's view on health and sickness. And tonight's another question about about healing. And I feel last week I only uh, really began to address the question, or perhaps I, I went a little bit further than the beginning. Uh, maybe I, I feel I, I uh, addressed half of it. And that was to discuss um, the underlying view that that one would be encouraged to cultivate from a Buddhist perspective. And so we talked about how whereas the, the world praises youth, wealth, health and beauty, these are the things that the world is, you know, holds up as being really valuable, great, wonderful, marvellous. And the Buddha called them the four intoxicants. And uh, so this is the view to cultivate, that these, these uh, states, uh, youth, wealth, health, beauty, uh, as attractive and agreeable as they might be uh, sensually, um, from a reality perspective, uh, which the Buddha was always... That was the language he was always speaking. They, they are intoxicants. They can uh, be the cause of significant delusion. And then old age, sickness and death, which the world uh, or our worldly minds uh, tend to perceive as enemies, uh, the things that have gone wrong, uh, disasters. Uh, the Buddha referred to them as Devadutas or celestial messengers, they're, they're actually here uh, giving us a warning, giving us advance notice you know, when these things come along, old age and sickness uh, and death. I mean, we see them. I mean, if death's already happened to us, that's not a warning anymore. That's, that's basically the message. Is kind of, we've been whacked with the message then. But old age and sickness are like warning signs, saying, advanced message saying, this is what you got ahead of you. And so we're, we're encouraged to view these things positively and creatively. So, so that's the underlying view. But then how do we apply ourselves with regards to health and, and sickness? How, how do we, well, basically, how do we meet sickness? Because if we are healthy, well, then, besides maintaining the mindful view that this, is, uh, this leaves us vulnerable to delusion, and we can just get around thinking that everything's wonderful and not make any effort to cultivate mindfulness and wisdom. Um, other than that, we don't really have a problem with being healthy. But uh, with being sick, we, we can find that that can be really difficult, our own sickness and the sickness of others. And so the question was asked, um, you know, not just with regards to the body, but the mind also. How do we, how do we deal with health and sickness from a Buddhist perspective. 
Well, the most obvious and outer uh, level of that requires attention is, is the physical, you know, the physical body. Uh, we need to, if we don't maintain health, well, then everything becomes difficult. Uh, so there are some obvious things that we need to do with regards to mindfulness, just just to maintain a decent level of health. Like, for instance, being mindful around diet. If we're not mindful, well, then we just fall prey to either to the advertising that we're all subjected to, probably us in the monastery a little less than you, but even here in the monastery we, we read Sunday supplements, and well, some of us do, although Tom hasn't been for a while, so we haven't had any Sunday supplements. Um, but wherever you look, there's, uh, there's uh, propaganda about what you need to do to be healthy, and it's got nothing to do with health. Well, almost nothing. Occasionally you might find a virtuous magazine that that is um, trying to educate us and help us, but most of it is just simply how to make money. And if we're not mindful, well, this is you know, we just feel fall prey to the conditioning of the world, of you know, the junk uh, that is um, produced as, as um, nourishment. Or we fall prey just to what our senses tell us, which is uh, basically, as far as I'm concerned, is fish and chips. Lots of fish and chips. That's my idea of a good meal with a good splattering of vinegar and some nice white bread and butter and a good cup of tea and a fag. (laughs) That's my idea of a good meal. (laughs) From the... Sensual level, that's what, you know, I think probably that's what my mother ate while I was in the womb, because that's what they say, whatever your mother ate while you're in the womb, that's what you feel the propensity towards. Anyway, our senses can lie to us. The, um, if we're not mindful, our senses basically uh, seduce us, and, and we just, you know, if it tastes good, well, we eat it. But, you know, the senses are very easy to fool, not just the taste sense, but the olfactory sense as well, I, read this report, and maybe I've spoken about it before, where to synthesize fragrances these days is very easy. They've now developed the science to be able to capture the fragrance of, of some particular smell and, and synthesize it. And, and human beings actually are more excited by the synthetic smell. And like if you open the car of a brand new door, or the, the door of a brand new car that's got leather upholstery in it, and it's probably the synthetic smell that uh, excites you more than the real smell of leather because that's the way our senses, our senses can be conned. It's very easy. And that's how the, the junk food industry, of course, uh, manages to be so, so lucrative. If we're not mindful, then that's what happens. We, we get sick because of the external influence. However, if we are mindful, well then, just because it feels good doesn't mean to say it is good. And so we can, we can question these things, how much we eat, what we eat, when we eat, and like the idea of, of just eating whenever you want to. If the mind is really balanced and our practice is really well established, well, then that's probably quite a, a good attitude, just to eat when you want to. But for the rest of us, our um, passions tend to drive our desires. And so um, really to exercise a little discipline around what we eat and when we eat is, is probably a good idea. But these are not things that uh, somebody else needs to tell us about or that we need to read books about, but rather if we're mindful, we can experiment and find out for ourselves. As a rule of thumb, it's generally good 
in my experience, to eat a little less than what you want. And you can try eating a little more for a while just to feel what that feels, how awful it feels, but probably it's better to come back and, and experiment more on the, on the side of eating a little less and to see how good it feels. It really feels good to eat a little less than what you want. So anyway, there's, so there's diet and there's also exercise that uh, in these days I mean, everybody is being told how much they have to exercise and it can be quite irritating really, everybody telling you what you're supposed to be doing all the time. But still, the, the truth remains that if we don't exercise, then the body deteriorates. And um, As monks, we're, there's not a lot written in the scriptures about how much you're supposed to exercise. And so sometimes you find young monks very enthusiastic about cultivating their samadhi and, and just sitting in their room or in their hut, uh, developing the, the jhana factors and, and forgetting completely about their bodies. And uh, it doesn't take, it's not very long before they start getting sick. And they may well develop the jhana factors, but that's not necessarily going to protect them against illness. Because the body, generally speaking, uh, needs exercise, needs to be used and moved. And of course, traditionally, in, in Buddhist countries, like in, you know, for instance in Thailand, where, where some of us spent uh, a good number of years, you'd be out in the morning for an hour and a half going walking. We have to wear all our robes with us, although it's swelteringly hot. I could never figure out why they made us do it. Even though there's, I guess there's one interpretation of the rules which perhaps could make you think that you had to wear all your robes, but it's, it's a f- you know, fair stretch of the imagination. But anyway, you have to wear all your robes and <clears throat> you go on these long walks and you're often walking on, on gravel, sharp stones, and, and often an hour and a half, you know, 45 minutes an hour to get there and 45 minutes an hour to get back, and you've got a full bowl on the way back. And uh, that's hard work, good physical workout. Then, of course, there's the uh, the walking meditation. Ajahn Chah used to say that he would walk around the monastery in the evening and he would uh, assess how well his monks were doing by how deep the meditation track was. Of course, the, uh, the main you know, focus of walking meditation is what you're doing with your mind. But the fact is that uh, even monks in the... Uh, uh, focused training period are still encouraged to maintain physical exercise and and it's 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 important to keep the body active and but again we need to apply mindfulness because if we don't use mindfulness well you can you know, go off in either direction like, you know I know I used to do it and I think I'm not the only one that you get a get a retreat period and you start getting a little tranquil a little peaceful and eating a little less and start feeling good in the body and then you start doing a physical workout, maybe doing some exercises on one of the, the bicycle machine or the rowing machine or some exercise machine or, or doing yoga. Or I used to, in Chithurst days, I used to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and, and go jogging, go jogging at 3 o'clock in the morning and come back and have a cup of coffee, do breathing exercises and have a shower and then be stoned out of my skull before I even went to morning chanting. It felt great. But that night hurt my knees from jogging too much. Um, and, uh, well, there was a time when I used to hear in the first days when I came here, I'd get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and go to the lake at the bottom of the hill there, go for a swim in the morning at 3 o'clock and, and do some exercises. And, but part of it was actually just getting off on, uh, on feeling good in the body. And, 
And if you don't have mindfulness, well, then even working out, even going to the gym or doing whatever it is that we do to keep healthy, even doing yoga, Tai Chi. I've met Tai Chi fanatics who are just so charged up that they're about to explode, just so full of energy, uh, lack of mindfulness. So it's not a matter of just uh, having an idea of how we should or shouldn't look after our health, but to bring mindfulness to what it feels like to inhabit this body. What does it feel like when we get sick? And could just decide, well, this is something gone wrong, which is obviously not the, the Buddhist perspective. This is just part of the package of being born as a human being. And the uh, idea is to uh, exercise mindfulness and to examine how our mind is affected, how we behave, how we feel too sorry for ourselves, or, or you don't want to ask for any medicine. You don't want to. You know, a lot of people are too embarrassed to talk about sickness. A lot of a lot of blokes in particular don't want to go to the doctor because they're too embarrassed about paying attention to their body. I guess it's probably that thing of, you know, you're a sissy if you, uh, if you pay attention to your body, if you're a bloke, and so you just leave that up to the girls. They can worry about their bodies and we blokes will just tough it out, and by which time you've got some serious advanced skin cancer or something or other, and maybe it's too late, which is unfortunate. And this is something I mentioned last week where the Buddha mentioned for his monks that uh, you have to be easy to look after, that if you have needs, the wise, mindful thing to do is to let your needs be known. That's, that's the mindful thing to do, is it? not to be afraid. Or sometimes it's because people think, well, I'm, not, I'm so worthless, they've got such a low self-esteem that they don't want anybody to pay attention to them. Leave me alone. And when, in fact, you're sick... You know, a suitable thing to do is to be easy to look after, to let your needs be known in a suitable way. And, but again, of course, that takes mindfulness. And when it does come to uh, letting your needs be known, well, you know, sometimes it's a, it means going to see the doctor. And that, of course, is something that, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty important that we, we learn how to relate to authorities mindfully. You, know, you can do a Google search on your symptoms and come up with all sorts of ideas of what disease you might have and, and uh, worry a lot about it. But probably the best thing to do is if you have some you know, significant symptoms is to go and see somebody, talk to a human being and find out about it. And, and I find it very interesting over the years to watch my relationship to religious and uh, religious authority. That's interesting as well, but I mean medical authorities. Religious authorities are really, you've got to watch out for them. But the medical authorities also, to see what happens when you're sitting in the waiting room to see the doctor. And sometimes I just read the Hello magazine. <laughs> but uh, but now the more important thing, the more useful thing to do when you're sitting in the doctor's waiting room is just to feel what it feels like. You know, if you aren't nervous about what the doctor's going to say or... Or I found for many years just feeling intimidated by the doctor. That uh, doctors are just like they're kind of they're like gods. They got all this power over you. They've got the power to heal you. And we project onto doctors, you know, that archetypal healer energy. And that's difficult. Difficult for us and difficult for the doctors. But staying with ourselves, that I think it's a good exercise in mindfulness that when you're in the the doctor's waiting room or the hospital, 
you know, just to make a practice out of it. To see, you know, here we go. This is this is dealing with sickness. And you see other people, and, you know, you see other people who are sicker than you, and then you feel better. Say, oh, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. Yeah. Or you um, could feel be feeling nervous, and you got to look at, well, what's going on there? Why am I, why am I anxious about asking a doctor to have a look at me? You know, why would that be? Very interesting. Can learn a lot about uh, where we project our authority, yeah. and then for the doctors as well. I mean, out of compassion for the doctors, it's not a it's not a very uh, helpful thing to do, really, to project all that authority onto the doctors. And there's a huge amount of doctors out there self-medicating um, and doing themselves a lot of damage, and it's not just because of bad habits they picked up at university, although that may be one factor. A lot of it is because they're on the receiving end of all these projections. People go and they're wanting them to fix everything. Whereas the wise, the mindful thing to do is to accept, well, we're really responsible for ourselves. And the doctor's not responsible for our health. The National Health Service is not responsible for our health. Even if we pay taxes and there's this National Health Service, that doesn't make the National Health Service responsible for us. You know, we... You know, a healthy perspective is to accept that we are responsible for ourselves, and that means, you know, we do need to watch our diet, watch our exercise, and then if we do get sick, go to see the doctor as and when we need to, but not by turning the doctor into some sort of a god, but rather as somebody that we're going to consult and ask for some help from. So there's the, obviously the most uh, immediate uh, outer level of dealing with our health and sickness is uh, with the body and and it doesn't take a lot of subtlety to also realize these days that that the western medical model is not the only one and that maybe we need to experiment a little bit if you're fortunate like we are you have good doctors good western doctors and they don't mind when you tell them about you're having been to see a, a chiropractor or an osteopath or an acupuncturist or a homeopath or whatever. And, and our doctors happen to think that meditation and the monastic life is good for you. In fact, our doctors even send people to the monastery, which is very good. So uh, if you're fortunate, you've got a good doctor. If you haven't got a good doctor, well, then I suggest you change it and find another one because the Western medical model, you know, all of us know, is, uh, is that's only one interpretation of, of maintaining health. But then again, if you do go to look at the other alternative systems, you again have to be very careful. I found that uh, you know people can f- find something that works for them. You know, maybe homeopathy works for somebody, and and then they get on a crusade and and want to you know, get everybody on homeopathy, or, or or maybe they present the idea that you know, having your back cracked a few times is going to heal all your diseases and. Whereas in reality it's probably the case that if we're mindful, really in our bodies, in our minds, feeling what we feel, then I think, as I was saying last week, we can trust our intuition and and we can feel where we're attracted. We can feel what feels right. And then we don't lose our confidence. This is something, if we're not really with ourselves when we're dealing with sickness, if we're not really being mindful then we're projecting all of our responsibility out onto the healer, then we become weak. And we can't trust our intuitions. 
And also, we can't uh, ask the right questions. When I go to see, often when I go to the hospital, or I go to have an x-ray on my knees or something rather, then I take my attendant monk or one of the anagarikas with me. And the, um, the excuse that I usually use is that uh, because it's probably going to be a female, uh, doc, a female um, x-ray operator, and we're not supposed to be alone in a room with, with women. Or, But the truth is, actually, I just don't like going on my own to the hospital. I don't like going to see these people. I like to have somebody else to talk it over with, you know, just to chat it out. I don't know when I had this thing removed off my head. I don't know if it was Ajahn Abinando or Rewato or somebody or other. I, you know, I had them come in and stand next to the table with me. And I think that's a normal thing to do. I don't think it's normal to, you know, if you're sick or, you know, in need of some help, to suddenly let go of all your friends and go into this weird, sterile environment with all these clinical people treating you like a thing. And that can happen because, you know, obviously these medical people, they, they're projecting their stuff onto people as well and not, it's not always easy to maintain a compassionate perspective on, on this human being. So uh, I think it's a wise and skillful thing to do to take a friend along when you go into the hospital or go to the doctor. Have somebody there just to help you be mindful and to stay with the process of uh, addressing this, this condition. I don't mean for an ingrown toenail necessarily, but, uh, you know, you've got something a little bit more serious. I wouldn't hesitate myself. Uh, I'd encourage people to ask. You just say, I'd like to bring this person along with me. Unless they've got serious regulations that prohibit it, then I think it's good to uh, in- insist if you want to. So, but talking about alternative treatments, uh, again, if we're mindful, you know, we can listen to what's being offered and uh, pay attention to it, but not get seduced by their enthusiasm. And we, if we're not really mindful, not in our bodies, uh, then this is true right across the board. You're listening to a financial advisor, you're listening to a political enthusiast or an ecological enthusiast or a religious maniac for that matter, you can be easily intimidated. And so in the world of uh, alternative health care, you know, we can go along and you can lose a lot of money being uh, uh, persuaded that something's good for you when in fact it's not. So again, the essence is really staying with our own condition, being patient. That's very important. You know, not reacting as soon as we want to. You know, like with with diet, you know, there's a good rule of thumb to to eat a little less than we want. Well, with taking medicine or seeking medical help, I think generally it's a good idea to wait a little, in some cases, uh, contradicting myself here, but generally it's better to wait a little longer than we might long like want to, instead of just reacting in a way whereby I'm going to get rid of this. We just stay with it and examine it and see, what's this got to teach me? And to be aware that... um, you know that sometimes you know you will come into these conflicts with different different therapists and the you know I remember when I was having my knees operated on many years ago now and I was in hospital I think it was for two months which was seemed an interminable amount of time and a very painful ordeal and and I had these major operations on both knees at the same time and and the diet wasn't particularly great to say the least, and 
and all I was getting was maybe one hour physiotherapy a day. I remember I asking, this was in Thailand, and somebody came to visit me and offered to bring in a traditional uh, Thai masseur who, who would work on you know, getting a circulation going in my legs. And, and these Thai masseurs can, can be good. They can also be not good sometimes. Yeah. So anyway, I asked my doctor if it would be okay for this um, traditional masseur to come in. And my goodness, uh, I thought I'd cursed her or something and she went absolutely ballistic I mean I really offended her terribly and uh, so we do have to be careful uh, as we address professional healers what we put out and to be sensitive uh, to be respectful of of the relationship but essentially to be mindful with our condition you know what's going on here and so physically and also then of course uh, emotionally yes how to maintain uh, health, but then perhaps more importantly, or as importantly, how to address ill health when it comes along. And more so than physical uh, inhibitions, I think we all suffer from emotional inhibitions that as difficult as people might find it to ask for help with regards to the body, when it comes to emotional things with the mind, for some reason we feel even more embarrassed. And I think it was uh, that, that Jungian Robert Moore who, talking about humility, said that that 50% of humility was recognizing you need help when you need it. And being able to admit it to yourself. 50% of humility was being able to admit to yourself you needed help when you needed it. And the other 50% was being asked, able to ask for it. And I thought that was very helpful because uh, we all respect uh, true balanced humility and to see humility in that light I think can be very helpful. If we can't ask for help when we need it, well... We're very vulnerable, and that's obviously true physically, but also true emotionally or mentally. And these days, because of the way our society is, the kind of conditioning that we've all been subject to, not because there's anything wrong with us, but just because of the kind of... There's nothing essentially wrong with us. It's just the way the conditioning goes. It means that our minds are weird. You know, emotionally, we're out of balance and have all sorts of excessive feelings and reactions and thoughts and and so on that lead us to a state of chronic discomfort. And this is normal now. This is normal in the world. You know, state of kind of collective neurosis that we're all suffering from: you know, anxieties, fears, worries, guilt, remorse, and so on. So I would suggest that uh, it's pretty important that we, in maintaining health and in dealing with sickness, that we get ourselves educated yes, to know to know what's around, to know what is a physical or an emotional or a spiritual, for that matter, uh, condition. Now, some people think they, this is talk to doctors, GPs, you find that 
a lot of their work is doing counseling. People come in thinking that they've got a physical condition when in fact what they've got is a psychological condition. Well, likewise, people come here to the monastery thinking that what they've got is, uh, well, what they have is a need for spiritual advice or, or they have a spiritual difficulty. What they've got, in fact, is an emotional or a physical difficulty. You know, maybe all they need to do is go and, go and do some swimming, go and do some jogging, get some more physical exercise. They don't need to do some more spiritual advice. Or maybe they don't need to go and do psychotherapy. Maybe all they need to do is just, you know, get a little physical, take up Tai Chi or yoga. So to educate ourselves, to be aware, to be alert to these different dimensions of our health and sickness, the physical, emotional, psychological and spiritual, and then to know what's available in each, each uh, domain, like with regards to uh, mental discomfort, or disease, uh, ill health, and to find out what, what is, you know, like... Counseling these days, everybody talks about counseling, it's, it's normal. But what is counseling? What is co counseling? What is therapy? What is psychotherapy? What is psychoanalysis? What are psychologists? What are psychiatrists? When would you go and see a psychiatrist or when would you go and see a psychologist? Or, or when would you go and see a psychotherapist? Or if you're going to go and see a psychotherapist, when would you go and see a Jungian or a Freudian or Adlerian or a a gestalt therapist, what are gestalt therapists good for? Well, there are some things that gestalt therapists are very good for, actually. There's some things that you want to go and see a core process psychotherapist for. There's some things that might be better to go and see a psychoanalyst for. And sometimes you don't even need to go and see one of these people. You need to basically be more willing to trust in your, your commitment to spiritual practice. But at least to take on board that there are very good reasons for us to be psychologically disturbed. It's not just because, you know, we're failures that we feel psychologically imbalanced and disturbed. If you don't have, don't grow up with, in an environment with you know, your primary carers around you providing a predictable and stable environment and reflecting back your ability to you and slowly, little by little, giving you the message that you know, if you want to have individual freedom in this world where well, you also have to have a sense of individual responsibility, if you're not little by little being given that message, then chances are we are going to grow up distorted. And, and so how many of us did get that message? How many of us had parents who provided a loving, caring, predictable, stable environment and consistently and adequately reflected back to us our ability and little by little gave us that message not many, I don't think. So, because there is, it's like a deficiency in, on the level of nutrition. You know, children these days, uh, watching too much television, eating junk food, are getting more obese. And that has obvious, you know, well-studied consequences. Well, likewise, if children grow up without the adequate psychological nourishment, then there will be difficulties. So I think that's important to recognize that just because somebody's feeling psychological discomfort, that that's not a failure. That's normal. In a, in a diseased world, it's uh, normal to feel diseased. So how do we address it? Well, again, this thing of projecting out onto the healers 
all responsibility, well, that's not, that's not, uh, that's not the best approach. You know, so to feel how we feel about it, not being able to go and see a healer, well, that's, that's obviously leaves us vulnerable. But desperately running around from one healer to another, well, that's not it either. Good friends are important. To have friends, I don't just mean professionals who you have to pay, um, that, that, that time may come, but you know, good friends who you know you can trust in, to cultivate friendship. To cultivate trusting friendship is a really important way of dealing with our psychological health or addressing psychological ill health. And just as with uh, the physical medical condition, you don't want to wait until you're sick before you learn what's a good diet or what's good exercise or where the good practitioners are, Western or alternative or complementary, as they're called these days. Likewise, with psychological health, we don't want to wait until uh, we're having a really bad time before we start trying to cultivate trusting friendship. So to appreciate the function of trusting friendship, this is, this is just true for everybody. We all need friends who we can trust and confide in. If we don't appreciate this, well, then even though we may have friends, well, we don't make any effort to maintain it. We don't ring up from time to time to check in with your friends or write letters or emails or texting, I guess, is the way that it happens these days. These are not just uh, frivolous indulgences. This is normal. This is, this is what human beings actually need to be doing on a conventional level of maintaining good psychological health is to look after our friendships. And if, or perhaps we say when it happens to us that we, we, we find we need some help, well, there's somewhere we can turn to. And as to whether one needs to go and see a therapist or not, well, that's an important question. I've met a lot of Buddhists over the years who feel very embarrassed about needing to ask for psychological help. And I can understand that, you know, because we come across the Buddhist teaching and and it is wonderful. <laughs> no question about these teachings being absolutely wonderful. And if you had a little taste of, of just how, how, how tremendously beautiful uh, practice can be and the beautiful places it can take us, then we can imagine that this is going to take care of everything. And a few years down the line, kapow, we get whacked with something really painful, really unpleasant, really challenging, and we find we're completely out of our depth. We don't know what to do with it. And uh, that can be very disappointing. We can think, oh, I thought Buddhism was going to take care of everything. And there are, as you may have come across, uh, some Buddhist fundamentalists around who will make you feel ashamed or guilty if you find that uh, you're, you're being challenged in, in, in your in your life and that the Buddhist tradition, conventional traditional Buddhist teachings are not able to give you what you're looking for. If we find ourselves in that condition, well then again, it's, uh, I don't want to, I, I wouldn't, I, mean, I would encourage people to, to resist a heedless habitual or reaction to that predicament. If we are practicing our mindfulness seriously as a whole body mind, here and now, judgment-free cultivation of awareness, well, then when we find ourselves in such a dilemma, should I go and see a therapist or should I not? Am I betraying my Buddhist teachings and teachers by going to go and see a psychotherapist? 
don't know. If our, if our mindfulness practice is really well established, there's nothing wrong with that dilemma. It could feel terrible, but that doesn't mean it's wrong just because it feels terrible. I would, again, just to say that we prepare ourselves physically and mentally and spiritually, then when these challenges come our way, we've, we're equipped to address them. And so in this particular case, that we, we don't react in terms of what the popular culture says we should or shouldn't do. We don't react in terms of what our immediate sensual information tells us to do, but we hold it. We stay with it. We feel this dilemma. Feel what it feels like to want to react in either way, to just dismiss it and forget about it. Just take some medication. Give me the meds. I'm, you know, I don't want to put up with this. Or booze, you know, anything, drugs, anything. There's another heedless reaction, um, understandable one, but is not serving our health or our well-being. So if having, uh, if having held the dilemma for a while and, and it, uh, it does, you know, we feel inclined to go and find a therapist, well, the thing to do is to just start looking around and find one. And my encouragement for anybody who's looking for a, a psychotherapist is, is to ask around. You, know, you, can, you can look up the yellow pages, but it's much better to go by word of mouth and find somebody who's being recommended. And you get two or three, and then you go and interview them. Yeah. Now, people don't usually, they don't, they're surprised when I suggest that because they usually think of themselves as being failures and hopeless and, you know, I'm, I've got to go and find a therapist, I'm no good. And, and I say, well, the first thing to do is interview your therapist, your potential therapist. You don't want to just immediately imagine that this person's got all the powers to heal you. And one of the things you want to ask them or feel out, I mean, you may not necessarily ask them a blunt, direct question, but to sense whether the therapist has got a, a commitment or a foundation in their spiritual life. Because any psychotherapist that doesn't have a foundation in their spiritual life, I would uh, seriously discourage from going to see them. Because just as with medical practitioners, there's a real risk of serious inflation of taking on this projection that people give you and think you really think you are God. Well, likewise with uh, psychotherapists, there's a very serious risk if they don't recognize that they are in service to a higher authority, which in language a Buddhist speak is the Dhamma, if they don't realize that, well, then they can take the projections and the power of the psychotherapeutic techniques and means very seriously and very personally, and that's very dangerous. And so anyway, that's, that's just as a hint. If anybody does decide that they, you know, or when anybody decides that they, they want to go and see a therapist, I suggest the first thing you do is, is interview them. Have several, two or three, and and then make a decision. Because it's you who's going to find somebody to help you. And you need to value yourself enough to take responsibility for that. And maybe uh, you find you know, maybe you find a really good therapist who tells you basically you don't need one. You don't need a therapist. That's perhaps sometimes the best message a therapist can give you. It may be just that the therapist feels scared of you. <laughs> Maybe you're so crazy that they don't want to deal with you. That's possible. <laughs> but sometimes it's the case that you don't need a therapist and you think you need one. Yeah. My own um, view on this, for what it's worth, is that you know there are some things that happen to us in life that shouldn't have happened. And there are some things that don't happen 
that should have happened. That's in our early life process of growing up and and using borrowing from the legal language, I, I would refer to it as, as the trauma of omission and the trauma of commission. I forget where I first read or heard about this idea, but it seems to fit with my own experience and observation that when things that really shouldn't have happened, ideally speaking, uh, do happen, it's the trauma of, of commission. Something happened to us or somebody did something that, ideally speaking, shouldn't have happened. It caused injury. Of course, from the perspective of the law of karma, there is nothing that shouldn't happen. Everything happens according to law. However, the injury that happens, depending on how well cared for we are and how well prepared we are and how old we are, we may or we may not transit that trauma of commission adequately. And if we don't transit it adequately, well, then we store that injury up in the body and in the mind. And then there is the trauma of, of omission, where things that, ideally speaking, should have happened, didn't happen. You know, we didn't have an adequately loving, reflective, caring, secure, predictable environment as children. So, and the way that impacts on us, I think, is very different. And it's been my contemplation on this that sometimes it's the case that for people who have experienced and not gone through adequately the trauma of commission, that is something that shouldn't have happened, did happen, sometimes these people are quite able to figure it out for themselves. If, with the right effort, uh, the right kind of energy, the right skills, and they don't necessarily need somebody else to help them. Whereas with the trauma of omission, where something that ideally should have happened didn't happen, it's perhaps more often the case that these people do need some help. It's just like turning a switch on. If a switch never got turned on when you were a kid, it's no good at whatever you do in life. You don't even know that switch exists. You don't even know that potential exists. If you never, never adequately loved as a child, you don't even know that you've got the capacity for being loving. We've all potentially got the capacity for being loving. You may have great spiritual aspirations for loving all beings, but if you are never adequately loved as a child by somebody who knows how to love in a good enough way, I don't mean ultimately and unconditionally, that's perhaps asking for too much, but if you didn't get that as a child, well then it's, it's quite likely that you do need somebody else. It may not be a professional therapist, it may be a, a very good boyfriend or girlfriend uh, who teaches you how to love. But it may well be a therapist, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly appropriate. That's the appropriate way to deal with the condition. However, whether, it's, uh, whether we need help or whether we don't need help or how much authority we project out onto the helpers, the healers, uh, is all determined again by how present we are with ourselves, with our own condition of pain. Are we reacting or are we willing to be mindful, to give it time, to bear with it, to listen to what it wants to say to us. It's, it's, it's going to tell us something, and if we, we need to learn how to listen to it. So that's the, uh, so talking about the body and the mind, well then, you know, dealing with spiritual ill health, well that's what we talk about the rest of the time. So uh, in response to these questions that have been asked, I hope these hints uh, are some support for your practice. Thank you very much for your attention. Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya.